I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source, the Vitalism episode with the passionate polymath Jackson Lears. Your new book, Jackson, is beyond category and gripping, too. It's titled Animal Spirits, the American Pursuit of Vitality, from Camp Meeting to Wall Street. The historian in you is reintroducing us to the invisible germ of energy, enchantment, courage, spontaneity, and longing that have driven the American story uphill and down to wherever we are in the 2020s, a big question in itself. You give us a world, Jackson Lears, that's thrumming with invisible currents of power, something more than animal magnetism, bigger than electricity. Describe it, picture this vitalism for us today. Let me just back up a second and say that I came to this immediate subject, even though I've been thinking about related ones all my career, but I came to this immediate subject through John Maynard Keynes and his reappearance in the crash of 2008. It was Keynes who popularized the concept of animal spirits for a modern and contemporary audience by referring to it as a a spontaneous urge to action. Keynes Mm. was interested in that impulse in the actions of investors. John Maynard Keynes, we think of him as the economist of the 20th century. That's right, and a great man in many ways, and a great thinker with respect to vitalism, though he never called himself a vitalist. So what I discovered when I started looking into the notion of animal spirits is that it it had a long history. The phrase had a long history. One of those historic themes concerned a personal link between body and, and soul, or body and mind, what we call vitality, individual vitality. And the other had a larger meaning that referred to the power that animates the universe. And this is where the, the notion of vitalism comes from. It refers to a life force uh, that we call God or spirit or soul, or if we're the French philosopher Henri Bergson, we call it élan vital. And it's very much a neutral, a morally neutral impulse to celebrate life force as an end in itself. So it can lead in, in various directions. It can lead toward productive investment, as Keynes hoped it would, because one of the manifestations of, of vitality is precisely the investor's spontaneous urge to act. So capital itself is a kind of vitalist force in the religion of modernity or capitalism. But it's also a reverence for the animated force that ensouls the universe, that gives life to trees and non-human animals, even stones and rocks, along Mm. with human beings. It's a vision of a fully animated universe, and it traces back to indigenous people's worldviews, which in fact envisioned an ensouled universe. But just at about the same time, we were destroying most indigenous peoples and and exterminating most of them. We, North American, Anglo-Americans in particular at first, the notion of uh, a life force was resurfacing in our own thinking and writing. You're also cautioning us, Jackson Lears, that there's a, a dark side to all this vitality, this fear in the roots of vitalism. Over and over, the road is to war. World War I, Vietnam, Iraq, who knows about Ukraine in the long view. 
is vitalism still the mark of the United States in our late imperial period today? Well, I think that uh, among policy elites and so-called thought leaders, I think there's a great yearning for the kind of vitality that is imagined comes from the waging of righteous war. And that vitality is particularly prized by people who aren't at risk in war. They're often typing from the safety of their keyboards and celebrating uh, the regenerative impact of war. And at the present, if we're looking around for that sort of vitalist in contemporary America, we need to look no farther than than the neoconservative ideologues who are pushing the... uh, proxy war in Ukraine, mm. that would be people like Ann Applebaum and, and uh, George Packer and others. The Atlantic Magazine Coalition, so to speak. Absolutely, yes. It's almost easier looking back. The 20th century, in retrospect, was a, was a parade of vitalists, starting with Mussolini in Italy. But in our country, the pair of Roosevelt's, Teddy and FDR, making the U.S. a world power. And then the Viga of early John F. Kennedy. I mean, we lived through this. Yes, and there's a deep need in the electorate, it seems, and certainly in the punditocracy, for figures like this that they can celebrate. And often these figures play tremendously necessary and humane roles in our politics, as Franklin Roosevelt obviously did. He's a man who was, of course, paralyzed from the waist down uh, and confronted a nation in paralysis and rallied at troops in the spirit of William James in an open and capacious spirit and not the mere uh, raw power that Mussolini embodied. So Roosevelt could have taken a fascist turn, but he didn't. He took a democratic, small d democratic turn. And that's sort of choosing the good vitalism over the bad vitalism, you could say. I would say Kennedy moved from the bad vitalism of, of confrontation with the Soviet Union and coming damn close to nuclear war to the more benign and capacious version of vitalism that he introduced in uh, the latter part of his life. Yeah, it's fascinating with FDR that his key word is fear. That's right. And he recognizes that fear has a kind of paralyzing impact. Although, as you point out, fear can also be mobilized along with rage to uh, energize at least the vicarious support of war. So these are all emotions that are very... uh, fluid and manipulable, and that is what makes vitalism such a tricky impulse to control. So what was it, Jackson Lears, that FDR and JFK got almost right about vitalism? In their case, it's a sort of privileged vitalism, vitalism of the aristocracy, so to speak. Right. I think they were both raised in the shadow, FDR in particular, because they were related, but uh, Kennedy as well, even in in the larger sense of a uh, kind of patrician ethos, in the shadow of Theodore Roosevelt, who uh, was himself, of course, the architect of uh, the strenuous life, as he called it, and was willing to take that into battle for the creation of an overseas American empire. So he did channel all that vigor of his own into uh, imperial pursuits, but he also directed it against the malfeasance of corporations. And in the name of a more progressive body politic, he went after uh, the malefactors of great wealth, as he called them. Roosevelt embodied both kinds of vitalism and their potential, it seems to me, for destructive and also very constructive purposes. 
Yeah, you're also reminding me of that tag football JFK at Hyannisport, but this was a man who had had the last rites of his church five, six times. He knew death. He'd stared it down. It was part of his life. Come back to your man, John Maynard Keynes, who I think is almost the central biography in this book of yours and the embodiment of the argument. Incredibly influential from World War I onward, but what we see now is that his genius was not in the numbers of macroeconomics. It was that principle of public borrowing to recharge growth. His genius was in reading emotion, mass feeling, and he got something incredibly right. I think that's right. He was very isolated from the Depression, not only because of his privilege, but because he was in the UK, and the UK had been thrashing around and suffering from economic troubles for for years, all through the 20s. So the Great Crash didn't have an impact on Keynes until he came over to visit FDR and other policymakers in Washington and New York in 1931. And he realized then that, you know, this really is an emotional crisis that we're looking at here. And it's the paralysis of fear that has seized bank depositors and investors and everybody who has something to lose, which is almost anyone. The fear of falling for those who have descended a a few steps already intensifies with every step down the ladder. And that's where we were in 1931. And he recognized then how much more difficult it was going to be to address the Great Depression than he had originally thought. We'll just create some cheap money and everything will be all right again, you know, at first. But this wasn't enough, clearly. This is uncanny, almost, the degrees of vitalism, but I'm stuck. You're mentioning the emotional load here, but I'm also noticing in your book what makes this period and vitalism so interesting is the cultural figures all around it. It could have started with Walt Whitman, who sang of the body electric, and he wrote that the quiverings of human desire resonate with the pulsations at the core of the cosmos. And then come D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's novelist, the poet and priest Gerard Manley Hopkins, Bergson, you mentioned. He coins that phrase, Elan Vital. He was French and Jewish and influential among Catholics to this day. Walter Lippmann said about Bergson that Bergson was to thought what Teddy Roosevelt was to action, a fountain of energy, terrifying and important, he said, a herald in whom the unrest of modern times found a voice. And then The great sort of metaphysician of the age, Ludwig Wittgenstein, described his vitalism as the experience of seeing the world as a miracle. Big people, big ideas, too. It's quite an array, and and that's one of the reasons this topic so fascinated me and compelled me forward as wading through this morass of various kinds of sources, because so many different kinds of people were affected by it. One could add crossing racial and gender lines, Uh, some of the visionaries associated with the uh, Harlem Renaissance and figures like Nella Larson and Claude McKay. So there is a a darker-skinned embodiment of uh, vitality that uh, a lot of black people come to recognize and celebrate, and also a lot of white people are, are drawn to as well across racial lines. Does this include black music? Duke Ellington, dare I say, the jazz age? Absolutely. 
the jazz age and down through rhythm and blues and dare I say hip hop. There's a crossover. You know, there throughout the 20th century there are white people, white kids, many of them younger people, not always, who are drawn to this world of ease and grace, people who seem to be at home in their own bodies and are filled with this overflowing uh, energy and embodied it in their music in various ways. And of course, uh, Norman Mailer was not only a great devotee of, of John F. Kennedy and Kennedy's promise of revitalization, but he was also a devotee of jazz as an emblem of American-based musical vitality. Yeah, come to think of it, Norman Mailer's still controversial essay called The White Negro comes out of this. It absolutely does. And it it makes me and I probably other readers uh, a little uncomfortable reading it today because it, it casts black people in a kind of narrow role as embodiments of sexual vitality and a broader vitality too. But there's no question that the sexual vitality is at the core of it. And uh, this is a fairly narrow scripted role that black people are expected to play in the mind of a, a white male novelist. So uh, there's a lot of projection going on. Uh, and yet the essay is fascinating as an artifact of the moment and the longings, to resort to one of my favorite words, that animate a lot of the, uh, the beginnings of the countercultural movement, first the beat movement and, and later the more politicized version. <laughs> the projection theme is fascinating. Norman Mailer, in a famous article on JFK, came out in the fall, just before Election Day in 1960. He says of Kennedy, he has a patina of that other life, the second American life, the long electric night with the fires of neon leading down the highway to the murmur of jazz. There's vitalism. But then Naylor, a vitalist himself, also was scorching in his horror at the war in Vietnam, which was a kind of extension of these illusions. Nobody bled from the heart more than Norman Mailer about that war. Yes, and he wrote a great book about the, uh, the March on Washington in 1967, in which he participated, The Armies of the Night, he recognized that something important was going on in the counterculture, the hippies, as they were colloquially known. Uh, something important was going on that a lot of commentators missed. And that was a kind of challenge to what he called somewhat crudely technology land. That is the, mm. the prosperous post-World War II America of uh, expanding suburbs and rising incomes, at least for the privileged uh, classes who, who enjoyed those incomes and races who enjoyed those incomes. But it was a moment, he thought, of spiritual sterility, and it expressed itself in the other side of the Vietnam War, which was the focus on managerial technique and the vision of the systems analysts mm. like Robert McNamara, that if we could just get the right instruments in place, the right technological uh, warfare going, then we could simply prevail. So that was the other side of the exceptionalist vision of, of America's moral superiority. It was also America's technical superiority. And Mailer was appalled by that and the uses to which the technical power was being put. So how would Norman Mailer reintroduce us to the, the danger here, the evil, the overreach, the warfare of it? You can hear it in the commentary around the Ukraine war also even today. We are somehow finding our virtue again. We are, we are being the exemplary democracy or something, even as we send cluster bombs to the Ukrainians. 
I think Mailer would have, I mean, a lot of what he writes grates on contemporary ears because he was so obsessively masculine. But I think ultimately he moved toward a larger vision of masculinity than the kind of heroic posturing that he felt compelled to you know, resort to when he was writing about the early Jack Kennedy. Uh, I think he, like Kennedy himself, in a sense developed a, a more mature attitude and thought, uh, well, look, these hippies, these counterculture types, are suggesting an alternative way of life outside this kind of technocratic impulse to dominate the natural mm. world. So in that sense, Mailer did get ultimately in touch with the more profound versions of vitalism that also energized the environmental movement in the 1970s and since, which is that recognition that there is a kind of miraculous aliveness at the heart of the world and that we would do well, in fact, we must do well to recognize it and respect it in other creatures who are like but also unlike mm. ourselves. Have we made enough of the fact that there's a religious view at the core of it and it made a happy bond with a variety of Christian churches and leaders? That's right. Early on, it survives in popular Catholicism in the sense that not the dogmas of theologians but the beliefs of ordinary Catholics in the restorative powers of, of holy water, for example, that restores body as mm. well as soul. This is a kind of magical thinking, of course, uh, but it certainly survives the Reformation and the, and the modernization of the Catholic Church. But you also see vitalism, I think, even more explicitly in evangelical Protestantism and particularly the great revivals, the camp meetings out in the wilderness where evangelical preachers believed that it was easier to connect with God in a forest setting, in a wilderness setting, within a budding grove, rather than in a meeting house or a church, uh, because you were out in God's world. And that was the uh, inspiration for people falling on their knees and feeling possessed by the Spirit in this uh, natural environment. And it was like an electric current going through the body, some of the revivalists said, this experience of conversion. So there's also this, this sense that one can put oneself in touch with this invisible magnetic force that energizes the universe that God has given us and that we can tap into to save ourselves. It's so fascinating how many ways this plays out. We have a kingdom of heaven, as in the Our Father, but confirmed in a certain way by 21st century science, links, for example, between patterns of neural networks in our genes and the cosmic order of stars and galaxies. Yes. Well, that's that fundamental connection between the individual and the cosmos. You were quoting Whitman earlier about it. The body electric was part of the cosmos electric. It was participating in that. And I think this is a kind of romantic or transcendental insight, the product of longing, to be sure, and possibly even a certain amount of projection onto the universe. But at the same time, it's being discovered by various scientists and various disciplines that there is a kind of scintillation going on, even in apparently inert matter. I mentioned <laughs> rocks and stones earlier, but among physicists and botanists, geologists, 
and certainly above all epigeneticists who are recognizing the importance of the environmental surround and actually influencing human genetics and, and, and are basically challenging the kind of Darwinian hegemony. That's a pop Darwinian hegemony because Darwin himself was much more of a Lamarckian than he's been given credit for in the sense that he recognized the role of the environmental niche that an organism inhabited in shaping its genetic possibilities. That kind of thinking has, has made a comeback, uh, and certainly the notion of scintillation at the heart of the universe links a lot of different kinds of uh, disciplines today. Who is it you write about, Jackson, who, who tells us to listen to the mountain? Not the trees on the mountain, but the, the mountain. Yeah, well, that's the great ecological thinker, Aldo Leopold, who urges us to think like a mountain. Don't just think like the wolves who are up there trying to find their Sunday dinner among the deer population, uh, but think about the mountain itself and its need for uh, ecological diversity, biodiversity, and the need to keep predators uh, and their prey in some kind of balance uh, in order for the mountain itself to thrive. Mm. So it's a kind of holistic vision of an ensouled universe that I think is really at the core of modern ecological consciousness. And when, if you want to find the best sort of vitalism and the best examples of that tradition surviving in the present, I don't think you have to look too much farther than environmental thinkers like Leopold. If you tuned in late, we're talking with Jackson Lears, a historian, about animal spirits. His book title, but it's the sort of quirky joke name for the fuel of our universe, the wild card in our thinking, what keeps the galaxies spinning and our own American brains churning. Jackson, you told me that the idea of this book has been cooking in your head for a long writing career, 50 years and more. How did the idea present itself to you. And I keep wondering, who is your argument against in this book? Who's the enemy of your vitalism or the check on your, your notion? Well, ever since I got out of the Navy in the early 70s and eventually went into graduate school, I have been drawn to thinkers and writers and artists who are aware of the hidden costs of modernity. Those who were not, in other words, so enraptured with the material achievements of modernity, even though they might well have acknowledged the importance of indoor plumbing, central heating, antibiotics, contraceptives, all those things we take for granted. One doesn't have to be what we now call a Luddite, which is unfair to Luddites. We don't have to be a person who's absolutely opposed to all technological change to question what modernity has done to people, what the experience of modernity has done at the level of mm. lived experience, everyday life. And uh, my first book was uh, directly about this kind of anti-modern critique of the culture that was coming into being in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th century, accompanying the rise of industrial capitalism. There was a great deal of dis-ease, discomfort with the sheer comfort and convenience of this new world that was coming into being with the separations it brought between human beings and each other, but also human beings and the natural world. I began looking at that anti-modern critique, which contained a theme of lost intense experience. It was all about the sense, the effort that we needed to somehow recover opportunities for a direct, unmediated experience of the world. 
And it's that experience of, of the world that Wittgenstein referred to in the quote you cited earlier of the sense of, my God, this is a miracle. One looks about oneself and sees the rest of the world, whether it's the natural world, as it most likely is, or even if it's, as Whitman so often experienced, the crush of people on the sidewalk or in the tram cars. That also is a moment, a sense of the miraculous aliveness of the world we inhabit. And it's that that people felt they were losing somehow as modernity disenchanted the world and removed the magic from the world, as the great German sociologist Max Weber so often emphasized, and he made this the centerpiece of his definition of modernity. And my view is that this is only a certain kind of modernity and that there is indeed an enchanted modernity beneath the surface or in the nooks and crannies of this modern house that we've constructed for ourselves. It's still there, the longing for enchantment. It doesn't go away. And in fact, it's recovered and given a new scientific basis, uh, even as we speak, as we were saying a little while ago about developments in biology and also in uh, geology and physics. Several shorter questions, Jackson. What if that sort of vitality runs out or runs down? I mean, where do we see it really in this picture of our kind of flailing selves in 2023? So many places you look, in culture or politics or the economy even, in, in the pleasures of daily life, something's missing. The term vitality seems less appropriate to much of our everyday life than anxiety. And anxiety is a... Uh, as Franklin Roosevelt realized, and many other leaders have realized, anxiety is a crippling emotion. It tends to keep us from acting. Uh, it tends to leave us torn between conflicting alternatives, or it drives us to embrace some kind of relief in regenerative war for some people, in compulsive exercise or physical testing uh, for other people. It's difficult to find a sense uh, of that feeling of life as a miracle, partly because we're, we're so busy, so anxious in our busyness, we don't have time to sit still. I wrote in one of my books about the longing for stillness that, that was at the heart of a lot of the critique of modern consumer culture and modern advertising and the, the celebration of change and growth. There's a kind of paradox here because a lot of vitalism is about energy and uh, enthusiasm and action. But at the same time, the kind that Bergson was talking about was not merely reducible to action, the kind that Whitman was talking about, the kind that the most profound thinkers in the vitalist tradition recognized. It was not just about unthinking action, it was also about the capacity for solitude and for observation and for reflection and meditation. And this is a kind of quieter version of vitality that plays a kind of contrapuntal role here in the the music that is vitalism. Jackson Lewis, we've been living in the age of nuclear weapons almost a century now. Couldn't you argue that the only fight worth fighting is for life itself? Vitalism or nothing? I like that formation. I think I'm going to have a t-shirt made out of that. Vitalism or nothing? <laughs> it's a real conversation starter. I couldn't agree more. I think that it's not only the nuclear threat, which is huge and often just overlooked or dismissed in contemporary discourse. But I think the ecological threat as well, and uh, 
and not just global warming, although that's huge, but the overall specter uh, of environmental collapse that could complement and coexist with nuclear catastrophe. So we are looking at two different kinds of apocalypse, both of which threaten <clears throat> life itself. So the turn back toward a reverence for life itself and how to enhance it, shorn of its mere enthusiasm for raw power and its militarist trappings, the turn toward the most benign vision of, of that kind of sentiment and that kind of belief and perception of the universe, that seems to me the crucial way of coming to terms most fruitfully with our moment. Mm. Because if we don't, we're finished one way or another. Mm. Maybe not right away, maybe not immediately, maybe not next year or next decade, but over the so-called foreseeable future. We must all hang together or we will all hang separately. Speaking of apocalypses, in the digital age, which is still expanding, the world of artificial intelligence, how does the vitalist respond to the hyper-rationality of AI? Free of human error, free also of human emotion, human judgment, human humility. Uh, you've just given a short course in how rationality, particularly algorithmic or technocratic rationality, differs from reason, because human reason involves judgment. It involves reflection, and it involves human choices on those judgments and reflections. And of course, algorithms are rules that are meant to be true whether or not human beings have anything to do with them. And they're meant to, as you say, sidestep the dimension of humanity altogether, and certainly the dimension mm. of subjective experience. So the so-called intelligence of artificial intelligence is merely the appearance of intelligence. It's a mere problem-solving kind of intelligence. It's not wisdom. In my view, it never will be, unless we can somehow get some preternaturally wise programmers to work on these AI machines. I think it's a very dangerous kind of delusion. And again, it's related to the hubris that is at the core of so many of the problems and difficulties that we create for ourselves. It's the hubris of creating uh, machines that can actually outdo human beings. So it's a kind of paradoxical and self-destructive mm. hubris, but it's still, it excites a lot of people. And I think for the, for the wrong reasons, we, I'm not absolutely opposed to AI, obviously, and I'm sure it has many uses we don't even know about yet. But I also think it can very easily be exaggerated. It's like Keynes thought about statistics and econometrics. Interesting. We can't transcend human limitations with this, nor can we explore the full range of human aspirations. We're limiting ourselves too much. We're limiting our definition of intelligence, and we're forgetting about the larger meanings of intelligence, it seems to me. So that's a great danger that we face. And I think vitalism, again, poses a, a distinct challenge to that kind of easy acceptance of the hegemony of AI. Let me ask does the vitalist in you take encouragement, as some people do, in the modern rise of biology, including the biology of the human gene, but a broad turn toward a generative mindset and economy even, away from the extractive economy and mindset that came with the Industrial Revolution? Oil, steel, rubber, everything. I do take some encouragement from that. 
it's tricky because so much of this kind of intellectual ferment that you're referring to, the return of biology, the rise of epigenetics, uh, the recognition of scintillation at the heart of the universe by geologists and physicists, the movement of apparently static forms of matter that takes place when wood rots, for example, or even when uh, stones age. There are people like Jane Bennett, the philosopher, who's written a book called Vibrant Matter, and Robert McFarlane, who is an unclassifiable figure, but who has explored what he calls underlands, uh, various subterranean passages and caves and other locations where he's encountered these scientists, many of them, also in the woods, of course, in in Epping Forest in the middle of of bustling London. These are a couple of examples of, of books from which I take some hope. But the kind of thinking they're talking about is still pretty fugitive and elusive, and uh, the mainstream thinking goes marching on, unaware of much of this kind of renewed enchantment that's taking place in the margins. But the margins are often the, the best place to see emerging and truly creative thought, rather than at the center of discourse, rather than in the centers of power, where you find people who mostly want to keep thinking the way they've been thinking. So... I do think there is hope on the margins and in the interstices of the dominant mode of consciousness, which is still very much about uh, disenchantment and technocratic rationality. But alternatives are there, and there's deep disquiet that is promoting their exploration. Jackson News, your book ends on Wittgenstein's experience of seeing the world as a miracle. You write for yourself... We are back with the core of the vitalist tradition, the dearest freshness, deep down things, the miraculous aliveness of the world. In this fraught and fateful historical moment, there is no more compelling affirmative vision. Well, I decided I had to stop somewhere and uh, I could say that, yes, I still think that and I'm still hopeful, hoping against hope, as we say that how people think can be changed, but it requires a real challenge to what I would call the dominant or hegemonic form of consciousness, because I think the whole kind of market utility uh, obsession, the definition of social well-being as something that can only be achieved through maximizing market utility is a very impoverished and limiting and ultimately destructive worldview, but it's very strongly backed by lots of powerful interests, monetarily and ideologically backed. So it requires a great deal of energy, dare I say, and vitality to keep challenging it. But I'm committed to that, and uh, I hope uh, I will continue finding uh, intellectual companions in that in that effort. <laughs> I think I found one in you. You got to me in this book. These animal spirits of yours make a literally enchanting book, and it's a terrific pleasure to to hear you talk about it. Jackson Lewis, thank you. Absolutely my pleasure, Chris. You're very welcome.